This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It was a summer evening in 1898, and in the local saloon of Skagway, Alaska, a small town at the edge of the Yukon wilderness, 37-year-old Soapy Smith poured himself a shot of whiskey. It wasn't his first drink that evening, or his second. His brain was swimming with booze, and though Soapy usually saw to it that he held his liquor, tonight he needed the extra courage. His position as the uncrowned king of Skagway was being threatened, and he had to make a stand. Soapy lifted the shot glass and tossed the liquor back. Then he grabbed his Winchester rifle and started for the door, a handful of his men in tow. The entourage marched in the direction of the town's wharf. Crowds of people stopped on the street to watch them pass, sensing violence in the air. A man on the street called Soapy a coward for bringing a gang with him. Newspapers reported that Soapy turned to the onlookers and held his rifle aloft, vowing to litter the street with corpses. But he didn't make good on the promise. The only corpse left on the ground that night would be his own. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. So let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Last week, we met Jefferson Randolph Soapy Smith, a con man who became the criminal boss of Denver, Colorado in the late 19th century. This week, we'll follow Soapy as he expands his operations in the state before ultimately setting sail for Skagway, Alaska to tap the Klondike Gold Rush. And finally, we'll hear about the violent events that finally brought his reign to an end.
By the year 1890, business was booming for 30-year-old Soapy Smith. His Tivoli Saloon and Gambling Hall in Denver was as popular as ever, and his gang continued to profit from their massive portfolio of short cons, the shell game, three-card Monty, and the famous prize soap racket. But none of these compared to the money they raked in at Soapy's crooked auction house. The con was simple. Soapy's men procured a bunch of cheap brass watches, which they painted gold. The Reverend John Bowers acted as auctioneer, promoting the timepieces as if they were highly valuable. Then, members of the gang, disguised in the crowd, placed bids on the items until an unsuspecting customer, desperate to get in on the action, outbid them. The suckers paid as much as $25 each, or almost $800 today. They walked away, giddy at having won, only to find hours later that all the paint had rubbed off their solid gold watch. These victims had fallen prey to a common psychological phenomenon that occurs at auctions, a sort of excitement that can lead to artificially high prices. According to economists Gillian Ku, Deepak Malhotra, and J. Keith Murnion, the competitive arousal brought on by an auction is a major motivator for those who participate. Looking at data from dozens of live and online auctions, researchers found overwhelming evidence of overbidding. Essentially, buyers paid far more for products than they were actually worth. Dr. Ku and her colleagues concluded that the physiological excitement aroused by the auction was a greater factor in decision-making than the item's value. People wanted to win more than they wanted a good deal, and their exhilaration overwhelms their rational decision-making. The soap gang understood that the trick to their con was to create a sense of competition that could only be satisfied by winning the auction, no matter the cost. Ultimately, the swindled buyers didn't only pay the perceived value of the watch, they paid a premium for the thrill of winning the contest. Based on Soapy's own notes, biographer Jeff Smith estimated that the auction house may have brought in the equivalent of over $1 million today in a six-month period. But, sadly for Soapy, it wouldn't last. The building burned down in August 1891, and Soapy was forced to put his most lucrative scam on hold. He might have found another venue to hawk cheap accessories, but around the same time as the auction house fire, Soapy was forced to worry about bigger problems. In 1891, a group of pastors in Denver formed the Law and Order League, which aimed to crack down on saloons and gambling halls throughout the city. Their first point of attack was enforcing a code prohibiting the sale of liquor on Sundays, which had long been ignored at joints like Soapy's but the league's ultimate goal was to shut down the city's clubs altogether. Soapy didn't take this threat lying down. In July of that year, the 30-year-old conman joined forces with other saloon and gambling hall owners to form their own group called the Liberal League. The organization directly opposed the efforts of the Law and Order League by supporting the local Republican Party. The Republicans tended to be more lax about regulating businesses like Soapy's, 
and thanks to his tried-and-true voter fraud tactics, the same he'd used two years earlier, the Liberal League delivered them a landslide victory in that fall's election. And soon, the Republican Party took control of nearly every post in the city. But putting his allies in office didn't come without its downside. In April of 1891, a bartender named Jack Devine confronted Soapy for refusing to support a candidate he worked for. Soapy had used his illegal tactics to help the man's Republican opponent win, and Devine didn't appreciate the slight. He showed his disapproval by giving Soapy a hard punch to the jaw. Reeling from the blow, Soapy drew his revolver and fired multiple rounds shooting and wounding Divine in the shoulder as the man fled. But the confrontation was only the start of a cascade of violence. In the fall of 1891, the Rocky Mountain News printed an embarrassing account from a man named Joe Matthews, an investigator hired by the Law and Order League to look into local bunko men like Soapy. Matthews failed to turn up any dirt, so in an effort to save face, he instead told the news a fabricated story about how he'd beaten Soapy up. Soapy was livid. The paper claimed that he couldn't walk down the street without being mocked by his peers. In retaliation, he and some of his cronies invaded the office of the detective agency Matthews worked for. They barged in the front doors, demanding to see Matthews. Eventually, it came to blows. Soapy's nose was broken by the butt of a revolver. While some accounts tell of a violent attack on Joe Matthews, others suggest that their target managed to escape. In the latter versions, the soap gang took a sacrifice in his stead. They dragged one of the other detectives out of the building and onto the street and beat him so badly he had to be hospitalized. By the end of 1891, word of Soapy's misdeeds had emerged from the shadows, and his goodwill with the people of Denver began to sour. Soon, knowledge of his violence became so widespread that residents even started accusing him of crimes he had nothing to do with. The bad press put a strain on Soapy's family, his wife and children, who he tried his best to shelter from his unsavory business practices, were being confronted with the reality of Soapy's violence nearly every day. Soon, Mary took their children and left the state altogether for an extended stay with her family in St. Louis. Meanwhile, Soapy remained in Denver to deal with the controversy. But rather than shrink from the spotlight, he seized the opportunity to take his influence to a different city. In late 1891, 31-year-old Soapy moved to Creed, Colorado, an outpost southwest of Denver. Most of his gang accompanied him, ready to replicate their success in yet another boomtown. While much of the state was suffering an economic downturn, Creed was still growing as a result of silver prospects. In the space of two years, its population had ballooned to over 10,000 and its residents continued to profit. Each month, Creed's mines yielded the equivalent of what would be millions of dollars today. Soapy 
saw an opportunity not only to make a buck, but to install himself as a leader of the young upstart community. Not long after he arrived, he rented multiple storefronts in downtown Creed, one of which became Soapy's crown jewel, the Orleans Club. After opening in February 1892, it was as big a hit as his Tivoli Saloon and Gambling Hall was in Denver. Soapy's reputation in the town rose so quickly that he attracted the attention and ire of the outlaw Robert Ford. Ford, who was best known for killing the legendary gunslinger Jesse James, also opened a saloon in Creed that year, and he didn't take kindly to the competition with Soapy. Soapy's schemes were aplenty in Creed, but along with the usual scams, the Orleans became home to one of the more novel tricks of the conman's career, the exhibition of McGinty, the petrified man. In March of 1892, an issue of the local newspaper, The Creed Candle, reported the discovery of a preserved body that had been unearthed outside of the city. The article described it as a case of pure petrification, speculating that the corpse had been frozen in the ground for 50 years. The news created a stir in Creed. Everyone was curious about the unusual find. Then, just weeks later, Soapy Smith advertised that he had purchased the petrified man, whom he dubbed McGinty, for an amount totaling almost $100,000 today. But McGinty was nothing but a run-of-the-mill cadaver, preserved using techniques that were more common in the late 19th century. And Soapy was the one who fed the story to the press. Although no one knows where they got the body or who he was, Soapy and his gang had planted him in the ground themselves. They then staged the discovery and sale of the petrified man to drum up publicity. The whole thing was one big con, and it was a lucrative one. Visitors would pay 25 cents to see this curiosity. The figure was lit by gas lamps to give it an ominous appearance, and Soapy would sometimes stand before it, lecturing on its origins and scientific significance. But the real money came not from the petrified man itself, but from the so-called games of chance that spectators were invited to play while waiting in line. McGinty was nothing but bait to bring fresh prey into Soapy's snares. In spite of his success, Soapy's stay in Creed didn't last long. In late May of 1892, mere months into his tenure there, a fire gutted the city's downtown and the Orleans Club burned to the ground. Although he was optimistic that Creed would continue to prosper, Soapy took the fire as a sign that he ought to return home. So he packed his things with McGinty in tow, and Soapy and his gang boarded a train to Denver. But the city had changed in the short time he was away, and Soapy Smith was no longer welcome. Coming up, Soapy goes to war with the governor. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. By the beginning of 1893, 32-year-old Soapy Smith was back in Denver after a fire cut short his profitable run in the boomtown of Creed. But upon his return, he discovered a more hostile economic climate than when he had left. The panic of 1893 had caused a nationwide depression, ending the Gilded Age and creating a political shift toward populism. The new governor, Davis Hanson Waite, heralded sweeping changes in Colorado. Known as a crusader against drunkenness, gambling, and other forms of vice, Waite installed new, like-minded heads of the fire and police forces. With these leaders in place, his administration pressured Denver's law enforcement to crack down on the rampant vice in soapy stomping grounds of 17th Street. They were determined to go after saloons and gambling halls in particular, putting Soapy Smith in the center of their crosshairs. Officials in Denver, however, didn't take kindly to the new governor's demands. Still beholden to Soapy and friendly to the local drinking and gambling services, they refused to adopt the new mandates. In March of 1894, Governor Waite sent in the state militia to enforce his demands. But local law enforcement fought back. The help of Soapy and his gang, Denver's police and sheriff's department staged a standoff in City Hall. They were armed with a huge stockpile of guns and several cases of dynamite. Fearing a bloodbath, the governor ordered his forces to retreat before an all-out battle ensued. But the victory was short-lived. With the backing of the state Supreme Court, the governor's anti-vice statutes went into effect that April. Local law enforcement immediately began cracking down on bunco operations and illegal gambling. And, as a result, Soapy's gang was forced underground. But even as he ran his card games behind closed doors, Soapy publicly defended his own integrity and castigated his opponents. He was quoted in the local newspaper as saying, I consider the life of a bunco steerer more honorable than that of the average politician. And when speaking with a member of the city's board of trustees, Soapy stood by his many good deeds. He said, I am willing to put my record alongside yours for assisting charity. I have given several thousand dollars to churches. I was intended for a preacher myself. When the trustees suggested that he had fallen from grace, Soapy corrected him. No, no, not at all. I thought I could do more good in the business I'm in than as a preacher. 
In this self-assessment, Soapy showed an inflated sense of his own moral character. He was exhibiting a version of the better-than-average effect, a phenomenon first identified in 1985 by psychologist Mark Alec. Also called the Lake Wobegon effect, it describes the tendency to overrate one's own mental and social abilities relative to others. According to Alec and later researchers, this phenomenon is shockingly pervasive. In 2013, a team led by Konstantin Sedekidis found that the better-than-average effect even applies to prisoners when asked about their morality. Most of the inmates questioned graded themselves as more kind, generous, and ethical than the average person. On the quality of being law-abiding, they ranked themselves as average. Judging by his own comments, Soapy no doubt had a rather rosy view of his own personality. He was so certain that he was one of the good guys that he saw anyone opposing him as corrupt. But what made him a great con artist was his ability to persuade others of his own virtue. And many people fell for the act. Dating back to the early days of his prize soap racket, Soapy had a knack for assuring his marks that he had their best interests in mind. And he made such a good case he even convinced himself. But even if he was self-deluded, Soapy always saw his business affairs clearly. And with Colorado's new drinking and gambling ordinances, he couldn't deny that his financial interests were in jeopardy. And soon, so was his freedom. In 1895, 34-year-old Soapy was implicated in a case of attempted murder Accounts report that his brother, Bascom, who had joined him in Denver, severely beat a man during a bar fight while Soapy looked on. Bascom was sentenced to one year in prison, and Soapy was wanted as a possible accomplice to the crime. Soapy himself claimed to have only witnessed the event, but the police suspected otherwise, and they weren't about to miss an opportunity to put the city's biggest bunko man behind bars. Now a fugitive from justice, Soapy once again left the city where he'd built an empire. Only this time, he wouldn't return. Soapy spent much of the next two years roaming the United States. While in the Northwest, Soapy took a couple of exploratory trips to the Yukon Territory in northern Canada. There were said to be deep reservoirs of precious metals there, specifically in the Klondike region, worth the equivalent of hundreds of millions today. Soapy wanted in on the action. But rather than searching for gold, he intended to mine the prospectors. In the fall of 1897, 36-year-old Soapy and some members of his gang boarded a freighter headed for Alaska. Even as the 20th century approached, the territory was not yet accessible by rail. Still, thousands of prospectors flocked to the region, making the difficult journey by way of boat and braving the inhospitable conditions. This traffic gave rise to a newly formed township on the coast of Alaska called Skagway. The far north boomtown had all the hallmarks of the cities where Soapy had made his fortune. Wide-eyed travelers came through daily, bringing their money with them, thirsty for drink and entertainment to help them through the cold winter evenings. 
And just like his marks in Colorado, these prospectors were hoping to get rich quick, making them vulnerable to scams. But perhaps most importantly, Skagway lay along the narrow passage to the mines, so prospectors had few options but to pass through town. As soon as they arrived, Soapy and his gang were off to the races, pulling all their old stunts. Three Card Monty, The Shell Game, Roulette, and Rigged Poker were all on offer. They also added some new rackets that took advantage of their remote location. Prospectors in Skagway were eager to send updates home, but because telegraph towers had not yet come to their remote corner of Alaska, the town was in need of a similar resource. So Soapy set to creating one himself. He opened the doors to a brand new wire service that he advertised had the ability to send a message anywhere in the US. Of course, it didn't actually work. But like with the petrified man, it was merely a guise to lure in his marks. While customers waited in line for their turn, they were welcome to partake in a variety of games. And between the wire service business and the gang's two-bit tricks, they made a killing. In their first three weeks in Skagway, Soapy's crew pulled in a staggering sum, equivalent to almost $1 million today. It didn't hurt that there wasn't yet an organized police force or local government in Skagway. There was no risk that anti-gambling or temperance laws would force his operation underground. So instead of taking his winnings and ditching town, Soapy decided to settle in. As he did in Denver and Creed, Soapy ingratiated himself and his gang to the locals by promising only to target outsiders and by fashioning himself as the town benefactor. He raised money for various charities and even bankrolled the construction of Skagway's first church. Soapy quickly became a veritable pillar of the community, and the people loved him. There, he didn't have to fear a group of meddling citizens like Denver's Law & Order League upsetting his business. Or so he thought. On December 31, 1897, an article in the Skagway News announced the formation of the Committee of 101. It was established as a vigilance organization meant to defend the town's peace in the absence of proper law enforcement. Part of that effort was putting a stop to bunco shops like Soapy's. But this group was very different from the one that had opposed him in Denver they were decidedly self-interested. Within months of his arrival, 37-year-old Soapy was reported to have three joints, gambling houses that is, in Skagway. The committee businessmen feared that Soapy was amassing too much wealth and influence. They also worried that his shady operations would tarnish the town's reputation and hurt its legitimate businesses. So they formed the Committee of 101 to squash him. The tension was palpable. And that winter of 1898, a violent mishap would bring it to a boil. In the late evening of January 30th, a man named Andy McGrath was drinking his fill at an establishment in downtown Skagway. At one point, he reportedly took a break to have a round with one of the theater girls, a euphemism for the sex workers employed at the establishment. 
When he returned to the bar, McGrath discovered that $100 was missing from his boot. Convinced the young woman had stolen it from him, he accosted the theater's owner, Jake Rice. As Rice and his bartender, John Fay, forced McGrath to leave, the man spit out a threat to come back and square accounts. He returned soon after, accompanied by Deputy U.S. Marshal James M. Rowan, who had been eating across the street. When the bartender, John Fay, saw McGrath crossing the street with an armed companion, he panicked. Fay didn't know that Rowan was a U.S. Marshal. He thought they were coming to shoot up the place. Fay grabbed a revolver and hid behind a car table. When the two men came through the door, he began to fire, shooting both of them in the groin. McGrath died right there on the floor. The U.S. Marshal managed to crawl away, but expired hours later. He left behind a young wife who had just given birth to their first child earlier that very evening. After discovering he'd mistakenly killed an officer of the law, John Fay ran to Soapy Smith and pleaded for the crime boss's protection. He feared that an angry mob might string him up before he was given a trial. Soapy arranged to keep Faye safe while things were sorted out. Meanwhile, however, the Committee of 101 met to discuss the situation. Some of them called for Faye to be executed. But Soapy went over the vigilante's heads. He contacted a U.S. commissioner and had the members of the soap gang deputized so that they could escort the accused man out of town. It was a massive affront to the authority of the Committee of 101, and they weren't about to let it go. Soapy may have won the battle, but after this, they were more determined than ever to bring him down. But the committee found a savvy opponent in the seasoned Bunko Man. That spring, Soapy announced the creation of his own Law and Order Society, also called the Committee of 303, a derisive nod to the Committee of 101. Residents would later describe the two factions as rival gangs, each bidding for the control of the town. The tension between the groups turned Skagway into a powder keg, and in the summer of 1898, a spark would make it blow. Coming up, Soapy faces his final reckoning. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. 
Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now, back to the story. By 1898, 37-year-old Soapy Smith had fled Colorado to set up shop in Alaska, taking advantage of the Klondike Gold Rush. By the spring of that year, he was earning his reputation as the uncrowned king of Skagway. But soon, tensions mounted between him and the Committee of 101, a vigilante group determined to bring the con artist down. That summer, the conflict reached its violent conclusion. On July 7th, a Canadian miner named J.D. Stewart stopped in Skagway on his way home from an expedition. It was a successful one, and he carries with him a sack of gold dust, worth almost $80,000 today. But because there were no ships departing that day, he registered at the Hotel Mondamin. The hotel also happened to be the residence of Soapy Smith, and Stewart was given a room just a few doors down from the crime boss. What happened the following morning suggests that Soapy may have taken notice of the man and his gold. Around 10 a.m. on July 8th, Stewart was approached on the street by two members of the soap gang, the Reverend John Bowers and Slim Jim Foster. The men introduced themselves and invited Stewart to have a drink at Soapy's parlor. Once they arrived, Bowers, Foster, and a third man cajoled Stewart into putting money down on a game of three-card Monty. As soon as he opened his wallet, the men noticed it was filled with cash. But instead of letting Stuart place his bet, they snatched both his wallet and his sack of gold dust. They threatened the miner, telling him that things wouldn't go well for him if he said anything about the theft. Then they walked out the parlor doors, laughing. Fortunately for Stuart, however, there were witnesses present who saw the whole despicable incident. It was an open secret in town that Soapy and his crew were involved in all sorts of flim-flammery. People liked their saloons and gambling houses and were willing to tolerate a degree of cheating. Outright thievery, however, was another story. Ignoring the conmen's warning, Stuart went straight to the police to complain about the theft. Within hours, word got out that Soapy's men had robbed a defenseless miner and it set off a firestorm. Skagway's whole economy depended on the miners coming through. No one wanted the city to become known as a place that was unsafe for them and their gold. The Committee of 101 didn't hesitate to act. They arranged to convene that very day to discuss the situation and how they could use it to bring Soapy down once and for all. Whether he ordered it or not, the robbery put Soapy in a bind. It only gave his opponents ammunition against him, and if he didn't play his cards right, the fallout from the scandal could destroy his reign in Skagway. Mere hours after the robbery, Soapy took to the streets. He spoke with the citizens of Skagway and denied any involvement in the crime. But it seems that people weren't buying his story. 
There were rumors about a response from the Committee of 101, and soon, word reached Soapy that the incident had driven even more citizens to the vigilante group. Within hours, their numbers had grown so great, they arranged a meeting at the town wharf. Soapy spent the rest of the afternoon holed up in his parlor, steadily drinking as he weighed his options. But when a group of concerned locals approached him and asked him to return the money and give up his men, he refused to cede any ground. He would rather fight than fold. Around 9 p.m., one of Soapy's associates came into the parlor and handed him a note which read, The crowd is angry. If you want to do anything, do it quick. That was all the encouragement he needed. Fortified with whiskey, Soapy set out down State Street to confront his accusers and assert his authority. Soapy strode toward the waterfront, his Winchester rifle propped on his shoulder. Half a dozen members of his gang followed behind him. Scores of men had gathered on the dock. At the entry to the wharf, a handful stood guard, ready to stop Soapy if he should show his face. Among them were Jesse Murphy, a young Irish immigrant, and Frank Reed, a bartender who had been friendly with Soapy before taking up with the committee of 101. Reed was the only one who was armed. Soapy stopped for a moment, said a word to his men, and stepped out onto the wharf. His crew waited behind as he strolled forth, cursing the guards and threatening to use his rifle on the crowd. Terrified, most of the men fled or watched quietly as Soapy went by. Only one, Frank Reed, stood his ground against the irate gangster. Reed told his former friend that he couldn't let him pass. The two men argued for a few moments, though no one watching could make out clearly what words were said. What happened next was straight out of a western. Soapy stepped up to Reed, raised his Winchester, and swung it at the bartender's head. Reed blocked the blow and grasped the barrel of the rifle, trying to wrest it from its owner. As they struggled, Reed managed to draw his own gun. He aimed it at Soapy and pulled the trigger. The hammer clicked. A faulty cartridge. Both men reared back, cocked their weapons, and fired simultaneously. Soapy's round landed in Reed's leg. Reed's first shot missed, but a second bullet hit Soapy in the leg. A third grazed his arm. Soapy loaded another round in the chamber and fired again. This second shot struck Reed in the abdomen. The bartender collapsed, his blood pooling on the blanks of the wharf. Shocked, the two remaining guards ran over. While one attended to Reed, the other, Jesse Murphy, yanked the rifle from Soapy's hands and turned it on him. The con man cried out, My God, don't shoot! But Murphy fired, sending a bullet straight through Soapy's heart. He died 
almost instantly. 12 agonizing days later, Frank Reed succumbed to his wounds as well. But he would always be remembered for ending the reign of the uncrowned King of Skagway. With Soapy gone, there was little to stop the Committee of 101 from implementing their plans for Skagway. By attacking Frank Reed, Soapy had proven himself to be the scoundrel they claimed he was. His men were quickly herded up and run out of town. And within weeks, every member of the Soap Gang was on a ship headed back to the mainland. Soapy's wife, Mary, traveled from St. Louis to Skagway shortly after his death. But she didn't return with his body. Instead, he was buried beneath the town where his career had ended. Though 1898 was the last year of Soapy's life, it was only the beginning of his story. Scarcely had he been laid in the ground before news reports about his final, furious days began spinning out of Skagway. They threaded across the United States from Seattle to New York City, cementing his reputation as the king of the frontier conmen. Many of these tales about Soapy inflated his stature, making him a larger figure in death than he had ever been in life. Early biographies paint his story as a sweeping Western adventure, and they depict Soapy as a romantic figure, rather than the opportunistic scoundrel he was. In her book, The Fiend in Hell, Soapy Smith in Legend, historian Catherine Holder Spoody argues that much of the conventional narrative of Soapy's career is all an elaborate act of myth-making, something people find as appealing as any con. Human beings are drawn to myths and legends for important psychological and social reasons. According to historian and cultural critic Richard Slotkin, legends dramatize a society's moral consciousness, creating a narrative that helps communities embrace a shared ethical orientation. Slotkin argues that the essence of the Western is the myth of regeneration through violence. In this kind of tale, blood is spilled to overcome lawlessness and return the community to a civilized state. The standard telling of Soapy's last days in Skagway fit this mold to a T, and it turned his story into the stuff of legend. And the first complete biographies of the Bunko Man followed suit, portraying him either as a nefarious villain or a dashing anti-hero. But historian Catherine Spoody systematically deflates the outsized picture of Soapy. She makes the case that journalists in Denver and Alaska were being sarcastic when they called him a king or referred to his reign. Instead, Spoody describes him fittingly in poker terms as a deuce high. In other words, a bold-faced bluff. But if Soapy's image was a lot of bluster, he was successful in the ruse. Though he was a master of the street scam, convincing history of his own legend may have been the one great long con Soapy pulled off. And the marks he lassoed into the scam were none other than us. Over a century after his death, people still see Soapy the way he wanted them to, as a man who lived at the edge of the law 
but at the centre of his community. One whose generosity rivaled his greediness. A man who, as his cousin Edwin wrote, could have been president if he hadn't found a better way to make a buck. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Soapy Smith, amongst the many sources we used, we found That Fiend in Hell, Soapy Smith in Legend by Catherine Holder Spoody extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Stephen Davies, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Con Artist was written by Greg Beam, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. 